The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. One thing about us humans, we are adaptable. If you've been working remotely from your house for the past year, Chances are, you've gotten used to it. I hate using this phrase, new normal, but after over a year of working remotely, being stuck inside, away from friends and loved ones, away from a lot of the normal, outward-focused, performative stuff that we successful human beings do to get ahead in the society, we not just persevered, we made it work. And a lot of us, frankly, have gotten used to not having to dress up. It feels scary to leave the nest. But now we have to go gear up for another change, going back out into the world, back into the office, the boardroom, the conference, the bar, the mixer, the airport. And for many people who struggle with social anxiety, this in itself is scary. So joining me now is Dr. Jenny Tates. Dr. Jenny Tates is board certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, and she's one of the first psychologists to merit the Linehan board certification in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. She practices in Los Angeles in private practice, and she's an expert in helping people working and living with social anxiety. So Jenny, what are, you, what are you thinking about when you think about social anxiety right now? We're hearing a lot about sort of this post-pandemic social anxiety syndrome. What do you think that's really about? Well, social worries make sense. I mean, we've been away from socializing in the ways we conventionally socialized uh, for a year. And so it especially makes sense if you're someone who has struggled with social worries or who has had a hard year emotionally. Um, but I also want to highlight that this is, you know, a unique time because we're kind of all in this together. We've all, for the most part, had a different year. And this is also really a time of hope. Um, and social worries aren't a bad thing. You know, I, I really like to highlight the reason people worry in social situations is because they actually care. <laughs> I think one thing that I'm noticing with my clients is people that feel like they were supposed to do a certain thing during quarantine or comparing themselves to friends that launched businesses or wrote books or thrived this year, um, that really can exacerbate concerns in social situations and make a person feel more uneasy as they reapproach. And I, my wish for us is instead to kind of remember that the reason our friends are friends with us is not because we have a lot to show for what we did this year, but because of the way we listen and the way we validate and em- empathize. And that's really what we can bring to the equation. And initially during the pandemic, people were talking about loneliness. And so I think for us to really remember that social anxiety will ebb and flow, and this is really an, a way that we can 
Um, we can cope with social worries and we can return in a way that allows for us to reduce our feelings of loneliness. So this is really an opportunity. I feel like only only we we Americans would make a pandemic about who can do more. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I think that there's this sense of either I haven't suffered enough, my pandemic hasn't been real enough, or I should have done more with free time that I had, and now I'm going to lose my free time. It's almost as if there's there we're all feeling inadequate for different reasons. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a friend of mine, he's a psychiatrist. His name is he's also a rabbi, Dr. Rabbi Zev Wiener. Um, he was describing returning to seeing people and with this just sense of like sheer joy, like I, I'm so happy that person's okay, almost like they made it out okay. And what a gift that would be if we could do that for ourselves to just really focus outwards on like, thank goodness that person's okay or that colleague, I get to see them in person. I'm so happy that they're okay rather than turning the focus on ourselves in a negative, critical way of, oh, you know, I should have done more or what are they going to think about the fact that I'm behind on this or, you know, maybe I didn't take as good a care of myself as I would have liked. So what do you tell yourself? Do you, do you have advice for sort of giving yourself a pep talk as you prepare to walk in that door or log on to Zoom? You know, I think the pep talk has to be threefold, right? So, so often when we are facing something socially that's anxiety provoking, we worry before we've experienced dread before. Yes. which And can, that's the worst part a lot of times. It's the worst. It's so much longer than the event itself. Um, <laughs> so we experience dread before, um, maybe a sense of panic during, and then afterwards we selectively replay or ruminate our biggest faux pas or what we perceive to be our faux pas. And so I think the the way to cope is really addressing each part of that cycle. And so the first part is rather than dread or worry in a circular way, a person could do what I call is coping ahead, which is more productive worry, which is thinking about like, you know, if someone's going to ask you about um, your loved one and you don't feel comfortable disclosing a ton, like what you might feel comfortable saying, maybe you want to say, I really appreciate your concern. And it's still a little... Mm -hmm tough to talk about, but thank you for asking, or some sort of way that you can take the stress and channel it into a way that it could be helpful. And I think along with the the anticipatory anxiety, we need to also remember that um, we're terrible at predicting how we'll feel. You know, there's a concept called effective mm. forecasting. We are not good at predicting how we will feel in the future. And further, our emotions are so fleeting. You know, I just did this in a UCLA group I run. We show people different um, emotional clips, like a clip of someone dying, a clip of an angry-inducing situation, a clip of joy. Um, and emotions really ebb and flow. So, of course, you know, in terms of anticipating, of course, you can anticipate that you might feel apprehensive, but it might not also, you know, last in the same way you might, you know, imagine in your mind when you're expecting the worst or catastrophizing. Um, so I think ahead of time to come up with some sort of strategy rather than go in endless circles, then mm -hmm. during to really lower your expectation. Like people are not, I, I, I personally, and the research supports this. I mean, people are likable when they're real, not when they're perfect. Um, you know, I think there's some research, I, I know that there's some research that people that, um, 
have social blunders are more endearing than people that are, you know, perfect. Those people are more intimidating. Um, (laughs) I want you to repeat that for the audience. People who are occasionally like awkward or nervous or blunder. And then we're so human. Yeah. I mean, there's research that people who have faux pas are more likable. They're lovable. That's human. That's so endearing, right? Um, and that's actually a, a, you know, one of the tips that I have for people is like, love your faux pas, like love that you made a mistake, own it. This is something we could take from experts in improv who are the ultimate, you know, social, mm-hmm. um, you know, gymnasts to be able to thrive after a slip. It's like, you know, your, your colleagues would like love you. It's like, you know, or, you know, pe- people love people who are show up and listen and, sh- and are present, you know, Charisma hinges on being present more so than a great story that's canned or, you know, rehearsing what you're about to say rather than really listening deeply to the person who's talking. Well, and that's one of the problems with social anxiety is that, in my experience, you're not present sometimes because you're thinking, oh, this person hates me. They're only talking to me because they have to or I'm going to mess up. I don't deserve to be here. Whatever the panoply of feelings is, you may not be as present as you normally would because you're worrying, right? And where that's just it, that's the problem, but that's also the solution. So the problem is Mm. instead of, you know, the the social anxiety is when you panic when you're with other people because there's negative self-scrutiny. And to, to treat that, you know, to shift the spotlight, to really turn the focus away from like you trying to imagine what someone else is thinking about you and then you processing that in real time instead of really listening. So, you know, to catch yourself doing that and call it social anxiety rather than fully believe that that is reality and to even just realize, you know, maybe that's one way to cope ahead to realize in the moment, I'm going to think that I don't sound as good. I don't look as good. I'm not as interesting as these other people. Do I belong? My imposter syndrome isn't really a syndrome. It's real. Um, and to shift the spotlight, to really be present, to really, you know, turn your mind away from yourself to, you know, be in the moment. And then afterwards, rather than selectively replay what you perceive to be your biggest slips actually like have some sort of game plan for what you'll do if it's watch a tv show or listen to this podcast or something because um it's so interesting a client just actually was telling me for years she regretted this thing that happened at a work event and she finally decided that she was going to nip it in the bud and send an email to apologize (laughs) you wouldn't believe it so she sends this email to apologize which she was filled with so much dread and shame around the thought of even reaching out and the person literally said, I'm sure you could predict this. He doesn't even know what she's talking about. Um, and of course, <laughs> it was like not even an issue. Um, and so it's, it's just such profound evidence that our minds are s- such uh, bullies and storytellers. Oh, yes. I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so the the question that I'm getting asked in every talk I'm giving to companies and, and groups now is, what should I do if I'm nervous to go back to work? Whether it's, you know, my boss wants me to come in three days a week, but I'm scared to go back on the subway, or I'm nervous to be around a big group of people. And and my instinct is to just say, well, take baby steps, you know, like, don't do it all in one work week. Don't do it all at once. Like you've been away from it for a long time. Am I giving good advice? What's your advice? 
That's certainly, I mean, you could certainly take baby steps or really think about what are you anxious about? Um, you know, if you're anxious about uh, going back full time because you realize that you actually really enjoy and you're more productive working from home. Think about if there's some way to problem solve that. If you can communicate, you know, that you are really productive. And then if you're worried on that end that you're going to somehow seem like you're not a team player or you're not accessible or, um, really try to troubleshoot that end. But, you know, the more we avoid, the more our anxieties thrive. So um, Mm. the root of um, a lot of anxiety disorders is avoidance and living a life that's more approach-based can be really helpful. So just remembering that it makes sense to be anxious because we have had a forced year of avoidance. Um, And, you know, you can try to strategize if there's something that worked well this year for you, ways to continue to implement that. And if you realize that this might be just be more anxiety than valid concerns, realizing the only way out is approach and be a cheerleader to yourself, be compassionate to yourself and, you know, approach by meaning do it, do it. dive yeah. in, show Get up. The, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Opposite action is my mantra. It's like, do what you would do if you were not afraid, um, if your fear is not justified. And, you know, there's some re- research that's very interesting, um, Seth Margolis and Sonia Liubomirsky. Um, she's a leading happiness uh, researcher. I have her book. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. She has a. They have a recent study that um, you know if people are uh, act introverted for a week mm-hmm. and then act extroverted for a week, they're actually happier when they act more extroverted. Why? There's something about like we're social beings. We thrive yeah. on like connection. And so even if you feel really content in the current, like just to remember that, you know, maybe there were p- parts of your job that you really liked. I like that. I, I actually I'm thinking about that because I mean, that really I, I'm a very committed introvert and I really love being alone and, and have been working alone in my little cave since 2006. But but I I'm lonely. I miss people. Like I'm ready, and I love the idea of balancing baby steps with approach. <laughs> um, I, I, you know how do you how do you sort of figure out the heuristic that's right for you? I try to give people advice on the show, like how to set limits and 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 make strategies that might work. So you know if you work at Goldman Sachs, for example, or Google, who have said signaled like we expect you back in the office or. Uh, Jamie Dimon, right, the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, gave a quote to the Wall Street Journal um, that said something like, I don't care if you hate sitting in traffic. I don't care if you like working at home. I want you back. Well said, Jamie. Right. But like, okay, so I have to go back. What is my strategy between sort of baby steps and approach? How could I how could I think about that first week? I think to really like work on this um, your mindset, because mm-hmm. if you are dreading the week before the whole time there, you're thinking, this is ridiculous. I can't believe Jamie would have the audacity easy for him <laughs> to say, I mean, you're going to be miserable, but if you can sort of just what moment to moment, and I love this concept of radical acceptance, which mm-hmm. is accepting what is just as it is in this very moment, it's kind of living as though you are willing you're not willful, which is like rigid, but you're mm. willing, you're, you know, and to be really curious. And, and, you know, I'm also all about like assertiveness. If you realize that that's really not working for you, even if your mind is right. And even if you're really present, 
Um, if you realize that there are competing values at home that you really need to attend to, I, you know, I always warn my clients that I'm not, uh, you know, I don't work in corporate America, so I don't know how well these rules translate, but I imagine there is some amount of wiggle room in a lot of um, companies in terms of flexibility and understanding for people identifying sort of what works best for their unique. I, I think that this is this is a piece of anxiety. I, I don't know how you how you're you talk to the media and you talk to lots of people all the time. I'm I am hearing this as the big unspoken work anxiety right now is that the unsaid is still going to drive so much of our behavior around quote showing up at work. And that for many people, their dread and their social anxiety around going back is huge, but their fear of not necessarily even getting fired, but just not getting noticed, not getting promoted, not being favored, if they're not there on day one, smiling and ready to go, is huge. And a lot of people are feeling very ambivalent and very unable to talk about it, you know? Right. And I think for people to really think about, you know, if you show up day one with willingness and with, I, I also talk about like relaxing your face, actually, like there's the, you know, mm. facial feedback loop. If you tense your face, you will, if you're just, you know, even just to just imagine if you're sitting in traffic or at the dentist office, you know, dreading a root canal or something, if you relax your face and this is for yourself, not for the people around you, but as like a way to release tension in your own body and have a little more space that can actually kind of calm you down. So there might, you know, if you could, if you're in a situation where there's no, you know, negotiation and there's no interpersonal, you know, strategy you can employ to convince, you know, your team that you want sort of a slow and steady approach to return to, to really practice some amount of radical acceptance and willingness when you show up, you know, take it moment to moment, be really kind to yourself. Your goal is to walk through that door, not to look your best, not to have the best, you know, sourdough recipe to share, but to just show up and really listen to other people and try to really focus on your work. Do you think that we're going to have separation anxiety from our homes? I mean, I think about my home. It's a very nurturing place for me. It's my it's my safe place. And um, I've almost gotten a little bit agoraphobic throughout the pandemic. How do you begin to extricate yourself if you've gotten used to being at home all day with your pets and maybe your partner or your roommates and it's cozy? There's almost that feeling of like being thrown out into the mean old world again, right? Like, how do we approach that? Well, look, I mean, a couple of things. Like, we're all in this together, right? Like we're all having to go through this. So this is certainly something that you can discuss with friends and validate yourself around. You know, I think self-validation is so powerful to just even, you know, when you sit down at your office or when you're taking the subway to work to normalize, like, of course, I feel kind of stressed. This is my first day back rather than to be critical of any distress. But one of the treatments for agoraphobia is, again, um, and I say this with so much awareness of how difficult this can be, but, you know, approaching what you fear is the only way out. And I knew you were going to yeah, say that. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is with so much kindness. You know, I know this sounds crazy, but literally, you know, we we have a treatment intervention group at UCLA where we help people get into like a copy closet, a very tight closet after, you know, ingesting a lot of caffeine, wearing winter coats, because getting uncomfortable, getting 
learning to sit with discomfort is the only way out of struggling with something like panic. Mm -hmm. And so really learning to sort of approach in a kind way. And you're not unique. You know, a, a lot of people struggle with social anxiety disorder. And I don't think us having difficulties readjusting necessarily is at the level of someone that meets criteria, you know, clinical diagnostic criteria for having social anxiety disorder. But I think what's unique about this time is a lot of people with social anxiety are, are kind of struggling alone, but we're all part of this shared conversation of this is a little tough. And if we're missing certain things, I think maybe we'll relish our homes more. But I, I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest things that I try to practice myself and also teach my patients is psychological flexibility. We want to be flexible. We mm -hmm. want to be more like palm trees than, you know, paper clips that easily, you know, <laughs> snap or break. And to see this as an opportunity to try to be flexible and really maybe when your dog's at home and you're working all day, you're not able to really like give your dog the same level of attention as when you leave work at work and can come home. And I also want to acknowledge like it, this is hard, like, you know. We could look for the, the growth spots, but also recognize that maybe there are things this year that we really liked that it will be, you know, temporarily difficult to say goodbye to, like working from home. Let's talk about networking. So many people have lost their jobs. Um, many people are looking for new jobs. Networking has been really different over the past year and a half now than it was for a long time. Do you have advice for people who are feeling socially anxious? Either they're going on job interviews or they are trying to, quote, get out there? Yeah, I think that there's no right way to do it. And you can be really creative and think about what might work for you. Some people might thrive at a large event. Other people might feel like sending a personal email or reconnecting to someone from their past could be the way to do it. But I think even the word, I think, has such negative connotations. If there's some Oh, I know. Way, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> you know, if there's some way you can reframe it and think about what you're trying to do in a way that's both give and take what you can offer. And, and at the same time, for people that realized they were doing too much of it and it was taking away from responsibilities or sources of meaning that, you know, did, it didn't need to take away from, you can certainly re revisit that. Like, what isn't working for you? What's the value behind it? And how can you come up with some sort of solution analysis? Like, um, approaching, maybe I think that we're networking even implies like maybe insincere or. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of sense of should in networking, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think especially if you're, if you're prone to being socially anxious or ruminating a lot, it, it's just an invitation to feel bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. I think now's a great time actually to take stock. I think a lot of us are sort of at a point where we can maybe breathe, maybe we're vaccinated. How are you taking stock or what are you recommending for, for patients? Because I think it's a time to ask yourself, what do I want and what don't I want, right? And what have I been, especially in a career sense, what have I been doing all these years that is really not good for me? Exactly. I think really coming up with like how, like noticing how you used to spend your time, how you're currently spending your time, what really matters and what's like a habit that just doesn't serve you any longer. I love this idea that um, Greg McEwen 
um, talks about in essentialism, you know, a slow no is better than a fast yes to really reflect and slow down and, and take a moment, like really to think about, like literally take out your calendar, you know, compare the old to the current and use that to really help you kind of design a life that will work for you going forward. And I want people to also be thoughtful that this shouldn't only be for yourself, but also with some awareness of how they can also be a service to, to others. I've mm-hmm. seen people talk about how they're really, you know, shrinking their, their social circles and pairing back and focusing on a select group of people rather than a large group. And that's, that's totally okay. And maybe you can give a smaller number of people more of yourself. But in doing so, I think it's also really important for people to keep in mind, this has been a really hard year. Is there someone in your peripheral network that might not have, you know, been picked for a small social network that you still want to try to make that person feel cared for and considered. So both in terms of, you know, looking at our own lives, but also thinking about how we want to give to others after this difficult year. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So Jenny, for those of us out there who have social anxiety, you know, and have struggled with it off and on, and we really just don't want to go back to being, you know, out there, what would you say to us? I would say that's entirely understandable. And if you can take it moment to moment with acceptance and compassion, which I'd love to, to give you a practical um, way to practice this. And, and then, so I'm all about like preventative medicine, which would be doing like even a three minute breathing space, which I could talk you through, or also the specific practice, a loving kindness meditation, which I think is especially helpful for social anxiety. And then in the moment, so I think preventative medicine before you go into the office the first day or the third day or a big meeting for the first time, do a little warm up and do this regularly because it's a tall order to expect mindfulness to work miracles if you just do it in crisis situations. And so mm. regularly, you know, I, I truly believe Um, given our thoughts can really disrupt us, learning a way to get more present can really free us. And so if you can practice brief mindfulness exercises, which I'm happy to um, walk through right now and uh, offer links um, for the article that's associated with this piece, um, you know, you can do that. And then in the heat of the moment, once you've done your three minute warm up at home in the heat of the moment, you could really ground yourself, pay attention to the, the floor beneath your feet, Take a quick second to check in with what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing right now? Is this helpful in this moment? How can you come back to be more adaptive in this moment, more effective in this moment for some people? Even noticing three sites outside of themselves, 
three sounds outside of themselves, three sensations can be a way to kind of get rid of that negative self-focus that is so common when you struggle with social worries. Right. Negative self-focus. I think that's something important. Well, would you um, take us out by walking us through a loving kindness uh, practice? I would love to. So loving kindness meditation is something a lot of my clients are initially quite skeptical about. Um, I think even the, you know, the idea of practicing loving kindness can seem a little funny to people who have, who have not tried this. Um, for people who are feeling mm. skeptical about this, there's actually research um, spearheaded by Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She did a study where she had people practicing for roughly 15 minutes a day over the course of six weeks at a Detroit uh, tech startup. So this wasn't, you know, the local uh, people that had a lot of experience with meditation, but people that were absolute beginners. And over the course of six weeks, mm. people actually experienced increased feelings of connection, more self-acceptance, more gratitude and joy. So there were a lot of significant benefits. And mm. the practice goes as follows. So you can think of, and I personally learned this practice from Sharon Salzberg, who's a wonderful meditation teacher who uh, teaches a lot of classes mm -hmm. virtually these days. And the practice goes as follows. You brainstorm a list of someone that naturally evokes feelings of warmth and loving kindness, like a mentor or a family member, uh, someone that just really like, you know, you think of them and your heart kind of opens, uh, then yourself. <laughs> then you can think of a friend that might be having a hard time. Then you can think of a familiar stranger, like, you know, the person at the security desk when you enter your office building. Then you can think of someone somewhat difficult, maybe like an in-law or a colleague that you've had some friction with, not someone extraordinarily difficult, but moderately so. And then all beings, right? So you go through this list of a benefactor, yourself, a familiar friend that you care about, familiar stranger, um, a somewhat difficult person, and then all beings. And I would keep this list and use this for, you know, if you want to practice this, like you could keep the same people for like, you know, the course of a month. So it doesn't feel like this is more of a brainstorming session mm -hmm. than an actual practice. You know, you say the statements of loving kindness um, for each person, right? So if I think of a benefactor, I might think of my grandfather who's deceased, but who's still um, touches me and is such a part of my life. Um, so I could think of him. This might sound a little funny when it comes to someone that's no longer here, but you think, you know, may this person be happy, may he be healthy, may he be safe, may he live with you. It's just really sending like statements of loving kindness, happy, healthy, safe, live with ease. Then I turn to myself. I would do that for about a minute or so. Then may I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I live with ease. And I'm not running through this, like just reading a laundry list, but really like doing this with a intention and um, sentiment of really deeply wishing myself well, which is something so different than when we're self-critical, we're tearing ourselves apart. So this is really exercising a competing muscle, then doing the same for a friend, the person at work and, you know, or, you know, or the familiar stranger just in your home life, the difficult person, and then all beings. And the idea here is 
this kind of can translate, you know, you could kind of take this practice away from the meditation into your life. Like, you know, a friend of mine was doing this and, um, you know, she, her familiar stranger was someone who had like a coffee truck, uh, close to her apartment. And that led her to do things like not go to the new pop-up, you know, trendy coffee store, but maintain her allegiance to this person who, um, she might've not noticed if she hadn't been deliberately practicing. So this just kind of takes the focus away from this negative self-focus and helps us build like actually feelings of kindness towards ourselves and others. And I can't think of anything that's more needed in this time when so many people have struggled and um, when we might be struggling ourselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Tates. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maura. I really enjoy talking to you. Thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and the HBR team. If you like our music, it's by Signal Sounds NYC. And if you have an idea or you want to ask me a question, tweet me at Maura AM, or you can send me a message on LinkedIn. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever, and I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy.